Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Um, tonight, this is really going to be a treat. You're going to hear from someone who has spoken on Oprah, the um, Oz show. She's really, really a star, um, Daphne Miller. She's a family physician and an author, and for over a decade, her clinical work and writing has focused on balance and interplay between nature, traditional healing, and Western medical interventions. She's currently um, providing primary care to patients at Whole Family MD, um, an integrative family practice in San Francisco, and she's also here as an associate professor at UCSF. And she lectures nationally and internationally on the topics that she's going to be discussing with you tonight. I love this. Her recent book is The Jungle Effect, and it's a nutrition cookbook travelage, travelogue excuse me, that chronicles her voyages around the world and... Um, that are to areas that are relatively free of modern chronic diseases, and then she'll be looking at how people live in these places that don't have some of the chronic illnesses that we do. She's contributed columns to the health section of the Washington Post. She's um, done interviews and profiles that um, have appeared about her in Vogue, in Health Magazine, in O Magazine, Gourmet, so she knows how to do all these healthy foods and do it really right. Uh, she's also, she, as I mentioned, she's been on Oprah Radio, the um, Oz TV show, Michael Krasny here in San Francisco, and has spoken at the Commonwealth Club. She went to Brown University and Harvard Medical School. She completed her family residency, family medicine residency and her work in primary care research fellowship here at the University of California. She, like a number of our integrative medicine physicians here at UCSF, completed the Bravewell Fellowship um, Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona, where people have opportunities to work with Tiarona Lodog and also people like Andrew Weil. Um, her architect husband, Ross Levy, and her two teens are always happy to help test her recipes or accompany her on an adventure. And I think we are going to be going on a bit of an adventure hearing from Daphne Miller tonight. Thank you. Good evening. Thanks so much for coming out. If your day has been anything like mine, thanks so much for having the forbearance to make it through the day and come here. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here, and it's actually really interesting that I'm lecturing after Ellen Hughes, who I guess was the first person to lecture in the series, because she really was my original mentor in integrative medicine and one of my first teachers in very much encouraged me down this path. So you, you, saw, you saw the beginning as far as I, you know, I was concerned. Um, tonight, as Dr. Chesney said, I'm going to bring you on a little round-the-world adventure. But uh, like all good adventures, it has to start somewhere. And for me, it really started very locally here in my office in San Francisco. Um, as Dr. Chesney explained, I'm a family physician first and foremost, and that really is what grounds me and centers me in my work. And I spend most of my days in an 8 by 10 room. As a matter of fact, I had a resident shadowing me here today, so she can attest to that. <laughs> um, and uh, working with patients on an individual basis, both on helping them figure out ways to get healthier or to fight an illness that they have. And it was really in hearing those stories that I started to get, become inspired to do this work. Um, and particularly hearing from patients who come from all over the world who are kind of telling me about a recurrent theme 
that was that when they would go back to their native village, wherever it was, they would tend to get healthier. <laughs> and then they'd come back to San Francisco and feel worse again. And there's one uh, patient in particular, uh, Angela, who I talk about in the book, who uh, went back to her village in Brazil on the banks of the Amazon River and was actually back there for three months. And in that time, really managed to take what was high blood sugars and make them normal again and brought her blood pressure down and lost a bunch of weight and started to reverse her, a lot of the health problems that she had. And then she came back to San Francisco and everything started to go bad for her again. And... Uh, she was in my office trying to figure out why it was that she did so well in the Amazon and did so poorly here. And she really is the one that coined this term jungle effect to describe what was happening to her there and really what inspired the title for my book. Um, the next part of the inspiration for me was my own travels. And uh, as you all know, being San Franciscans, it gets horribly cold here during the summer. And uh, one summer in particular, I decided to volunteer in a little a wayside village in a very, very remote part of Peru that is also on a tributary of the Amazon River. And I went down there to relieve one of the local doctors. And it really is a part of the world where there are no roads. The only way you can get there is by boat. And it mainly serves a local Indian population. And uh, in case you don't believe that I was there, there's nothing that... You just cannot get this kind of hat in San Francisco. So there I am in this little village called Las Palmeras. And this is actually the largest piece of industry in the village. That was a, um, a, for making palm wine. It was a little refinery there. And there was a horse that walked around in a circle to squash uh, the palm but other than that, really, no stores. Anything you would get in this village would be incredibly local, coming either from the river or from the, the uh, surrounding uh, areas in the jungle and uh, the gardens. And this was the clinic. Looks a lot like this hospital that we're sitting in, no? Same, same level of sophistication. You can see the, uh, the hours on the doors. We did everything in this clinic, and I really saw everything when I was down there. I saw snake bites, I saw machete wounds, I saw malaria. Uh, but what was really fascinating to me was even amongst the most elderly patients that I was taking care of, and there were people who really were quite elderly in the village, I was not seeing any of the bread and butter diseases that I take care of in San Francisco. I wasn't seeing the diabetes and the heart disease and the depression and the colon cancers, the things that really are in my office every day of the week here. And here's some sample of these very elderly. As you can see, the hat that I was wearing is actually quite fashionable down there. And uh, maybe that is actually the secret to longevity in the rainforest is to wear a monkey on your head. So, but these were two folks that I met when I was down there who were delighted to share their pictures with me. And I love the Abercrombie t-shirt, but I promise you that is something that was imported from afar. There are no Abercrombie and Fitch stores in Las Palmeras or anywhere near there. So it was really this whole experience there in the village and realizing that uh, everything that was eaten was incredibly local. And of course, you know, they were walking and they were outdoors and they were using their slow boats and so on. So there were other aspects as well. But the nutrition itself was so profound. Uh, believe it or not, in this picture right here, what we're looking at is a very intensive garden. 
And it might not look like the gardens that you're used to or the farms that you might visit in Northern California, but most of the local foods are actually being grown in there in this very jumbled and wonderfully mixed uh, way. So there's manioc and uh, different kinds of what they call, they call um, jungle spaghetti, but it's uh, shredded hearts of palm. And the free-range chickens wander around, and you pick the bananas. And as a matter of fact, instead of power bars, what you do is you pick a whole frond of bananas, and you hang them on your porch, like the picture on the bottom there. And when you get really hungry, that's what you eat for energy instead of your power bar or your candy bar. So this really was the lifestyle there. And for me, I realized that it had a lot to do with the health. It was truly this local diet. But it wasn't just the foods itself. It was actually the way that they were eaten, the sequence in the day and the recipes and the spices that were used and the fact that people ate together and even the patterns in which they ate. And I started to become very, very interested in really how a whole diet and a whole culture shapes the wellness of a community. And we talk a lot about this idea of survival of the fittest people. But I really started to think, what does it mean to have survival of the fittest diet? These are diets that were handed down generation after generation, from grandmother to granddaughter and so on, because they tasted delicious but also because they kept people healthy. And really, there's a lot of wisdom in this. But we're standing here in a medical school. This is an institution of science and great learning. So I can't just tell you intuitively that this is something wonderful and healthy. I have to actually give you some scientific proof, right? What your grandmother said is not enough anymore. So I'm going to share with you some interesting studies to start with just on traditional diets. And one of them is fresh off the press and I have to admit has really blown my mind. So I'm going to share that with you as well. This is just Uh, four different studies that were published all looking at communities that eat a Mediterranean diet and looking at the fact that they have much better life expectancy, lower mortality in general. So starting to look instead of a factor like Prozac or Viagra, they're actually looking at a diet as an intervention and they have all these different ways that they quantified what is a Mediterranean diet and we can talk about that in a little bit. But the bottom line being that people that eat this kind of diet traditionally did better than people who were eating a Western or standard American diet or what have you. The interesting thing about this this study in particular was that it wasn't necessarily done in people from Italy or Greece or France or even people who can drive for a couple hours and see the Mediterranean. One of these groups actually live in Australia. So they are suggesting the fact that these diets are very transferable and something I call diet swapping. (laughs) And that although genetics might play a role, and we'll talk about that a little bit at the end if we have time, that it really probably is any traditional diet is better for you than what we have uh, access to in the United States as our standard McDonald's and French fries diet that Dr. Chesney was just talking about. And this is a second study that I'd like to share with you, and this is so interesting. This is a study about brothers. And one of the brothers stayed in India in the area of Gujarat, and the other brother moved to Sanwell in England. And it happens that this is uh, a large, there's a very common migration pattern between these two places. So they were able to identify a lot of sets of brothers, one of them in India, 
still eating the traditional Indian diet, the other one in England. And they did measurements, body mass indices, for these sets of brothers. And they came up with quite a few of them. And no surprise, what they found was within the same, same generation, these are brothers, okay? The ones that live in England were much, much heavier than the ones that stayed in India. Now, that makes sense in terms of what they were eating, but this is really the data being collected. Now, the latest study, which is so fascinating to me, and this really is hot off the press. As a matter of fact, it hasn't been published yet. It's still in the online um, proceedings journals. This, these were researchers in Italy that compared two groups of school children. They compared a group of school children who live in a very remote agricultural village in Bulpan in Burkina Faso, which was previously called Upper Volta, for those of you who haven't checked a map in 20 years. But um, and this is a very, very remote village. You can see the map down there. It's quite far from Ouagadougou. I don't know. Has anybody in the room ever been to Ouagadougou? All right, great. Have you been to Bulpan? Okay, great. Well, it's pretty remote. But even Ouagadougou, as you know, is, is, is not the most sophisticated of places. Um, and uh, they, what they did in, uh, was they compared these children, and these were all healthy children, to children who were living in downtown Florence, middle-class kids living in downtown Florence, Italy, because they were Italian researchers. And the kids in Florence were going to school and probably eating a diet that's not too different these days from the diet the kids in the United States eat. I don't know if you've been following it, but you know, in urban areas in Europe, they're having the same explosion of heart disease and obesity and all the problems that we're having here in the United States. Um, and what they did from these two groups of kids was they collected their bowel movements. They collected their feces, okay? And they studied them for bacteria. And this is something that they couldn't have done even 10 years ago because it was actually, they did DNA sequencing on their bacteria in their, in their feces to actually see what the colonies were. And what they found was really, really striking, okay? What they found was that the kids in Burkina Faso, the bacteria that was living in their intestine was completely different from the bacteria that lives in the intestines of the kids in Florence. And what they found was the green, okay, these are the Bacteroidetes species. And these are bacteria that have evolved both in the soil and now in our intestine to thrive off of vegetables. And they also happen to be bacteria that tend to put very healthy things like antioxidants into our systems. They like vegetables, they like collecting healthy things from vegetables and giving them to us. So we can kind of think of them as health-promoting bacteria. The red bacteria are called firmicutes, and I don't know if any of you have ever heard of things like Salmonella or Shigella or E. coli or Klebsiella. These are the things that hit the news as superstars whenever we have one of those big food contamination. Those are part of the Firmicutes family, okay? Well, it turns out that the kids in Europe had a lot of those in their intestines. They didn't have the ones that caused the super bad infections like Salmonella, Klebsiella, or else they'd be really sick, but they had the first cousins to those. And it turns out that those Firmicutes are actually really good at doing exactly what the Bacteroidetes do, but they're good at doing it with fatty foods and meat and so on, and packaging lots of sugar and, pr and putting that into our, intest in into our bodies. So they're they're like 
factories for bad food. So the bottom line is that people who are eating traditional diets are actually harboring totally different bacteria in their guts that are these health-promoting bacteria than people who are not. And this is a whole exploding area of study. You're going to hear more and more about this in the years to come. This is very much the beginning of this. But really what the other thing that they found with this research, and I could probably spend the hour talking about this slide because it's so fascinating to me, but they found that the kids in Burkina Faso not only did they have these health-promoting bacteria, they had more diversity in their bacteria. They had a whole range of bacteroidetes that you don't even find in people in Western cultures. So not only is the standard American diet giving us unhealthy bacteria, it's actually causing bacterial extinction of, of these healthy forms of bacteria. So you've seen from the macro level of studying these whole civilizations, these communities, that was the first slide, and seeing how they're healthier and live longer when they have traditional diets, to studying brothers, and now I've brought you down to the intestinal level, and you can see that even there it marches out. So in the rest of this talk, what I'm going to do is actually bring you around the globe a little bit and tell you about some of the secrets from these countries, some of the cultural secrets that have gone into these diets that really have translated into this picture I've shown you. And hopefully by the end, you'll have sort of a rich little treasure trove to take home with you of these various things. So um, we're going to start in Copper Canyon in Mexico. And... Um, Copper Canyon, geographically, is really probably the closest to us. It's only a couple hundred miles as the crow flies south of Tucson. And has anybody been to Copper Canyon? Maybe the same person who went to Ouagadougou, no? <laughs> anybody been to Copper Canyon here? So it's actually really interesting. Uh, when I give uh, uh, this talk, what I have noticed is that uh, people have been to some of the most remote places in other parts of the globe but haven't been to Copper Canyon. So um, Copper Canyon, it, it actually took me a couple days to go there. I went there with my family. I actually had to uh, fly to El Paso, then walk across the border, and then take a school bus from Juarez, which I guess has one of the highest murder rates per capita in the world now, um, and then take another school bus up into the canyon, then take an all-terrain vehicle down to the bottoms of the canyon, to, the, to what's called the Barrancas de Cobre. And the reason that I went there uh, was to um, visit the Tarahumara Indians, who are a traditional Indian culture that lives down there in, in the canyons and who really have tried to keep themselves very separate from the rest of Mexico and not adopt a lot of the same traditions in terms of, or not adopt a lot of sort of the more modern traditions in terms of language and ceremonies and also in terms of food. Now, the Tarahumara, there was a lot of uh, reasons to go visit them, and it really is a fascinating culture. They're cliff-dwelling culture. They live in very, very remote rancheros. Um, 
But for me, and, and this is actually some uh, people that I met along the way, uh, this is actually the slide on the left here is very funny. I was sitting there with my family. We were hiking up this tiny little trail in the middle of nowhere. And uh, this woman came along with a little pile of fresh tortillas that she'd made. And we had these disgusting sandwiches that uh, we had packed from the little pension where we were eating. And she was so excited about our sandwiches that she's holding one and had traded me for a pile of beautiful tortillas. <laughs> really feeling very guilty about that. But these are kids. And if you see he, that little boy, the bigger one is holding a wooden ball that they make. And they play this game called Rara Jipiri, where they kick the ball for you know miles and miles down these tiny trails. And uh, so they do a lot of walking and and, as well as healthy eating. But for me, this was a, one of the most fascinating piece, pieces of medical data about the Tarahumara. They, they are the blood cousins to the Pima of Arizona. And Pima of Arizona have some of the highest rates of diabetes in the world. I'm sure you've heard about it on the news. They had a piece in the New York Times about it not too long ago. Um, by the time you're in your 30s as a Pima, you have well over 50% chance of developing diabetes. And um, the when you go truly down into the canyons and look for diabetes among the Tarahumara, you don't find it. And so can we say that this is genetics? No, because their cousins in Arizona have some of the highest rates in the world. So it tells us that this really probably has a lot to do with diet. So um, what do they eat? Very simple. They really are quite vegan <laughs> in their approach to eating. They eat uh, the, the three sisters, the tres hermanas, and they eat corn and beans and squash. And when we're talking about corn, it's not at all in a processed form. As a matter of fact, their tortillas, like the ones that I traded with that woman, they're thick and rich and nutty. And honestly, you eat one of them, and you're full. <laughs> and uh, if you had another one left over, you could use it to scrub the corns off your feet or clean the ring out from your bathtub. They really are. And so they eat these in a, in a stew, and they're uh, quite delicious. And here's an example of something I had down there. And um, most of the people I met down in Copper Canyon really had no formal education and certainly had not gone and gotten a PhD in nutrition. And yet, when I talked to them, they could tell me that the foods that they were eating were actually good for their blood sugar. It was really fascinating. And you look at the science of this, and they have a whole team from the University of uh, Oregon that went down and studied the food. And it, you know, they found that most of the things that they were eating had this very low glycemic index. So indeed, very little blood sh uh, sugar going into the bloodstream at one time. And even what you're seeing here on this screen here is actually um, uh, sort of low glycemic index in the making because the tortillas, which do have a little bit more sugar, the corn tortillas, than the beans, but it turns out that when you eat the tortillas with the beans together, the release of sugar from the tortillas slows down to match that of the beans. So there's this wonderful science of food combining that goes on. And uh, really quite incredible from a group of people who don't have PhDs in nutrition and haven't been spending a lot of time on the bench trying to prove this and sell it to you as a functional food. Now, this is the other thing that I learned down in Copper Canyon. What do you see growing in front of this traditional ranchero? 
cactus, the nopales. And any uh, pharmacologists or people who have advanced degrees in pharmacology here in the room? Well, you're going to just have to take my word for it then, that there is a substance in nopales that is absolutely similar to something which is found in metformin or glucophage. Does anybody know what that is? That is a medication for diabetes. It is probably the most common medication for diabetes in this country. So what you have here is a tradition of not only eating healthy foods, but of having your pharmacy sitting right in front of your house. And these are one of the main sources of greens for the Tarahumara. And they go out and they pick these nopales and they, and they eat them and they grill them and they're eating their anti-diabetic medicine. Now, um, I met Taurino. He's half Tarahumaran and half um, just, uh, he calls himself mestizo or mixed. And um, he showed me his garden, which was another jumble of stuff. But then he started to show me all these things in his garden that he knew to lower blood sugar, okay? Things that he was producing, like cayenne and um, uh, things like jicama and cinnamon and cilantro and so on. And just in case you doubt Taurino, well, a bunch of researchers went down there from the University of Mexico and studied the plants down there. And this is an article that was published in the Journal of Ethnobotany. And they found 306 species of plants growing in that region that lower blood sugar. So when you hear a uh, program on the radio that talks about the exploding rates of diabetes amongst a group like Latino Americans who have come to the United States, Partially, it's the bad foods that we have to offer here, but partially it is that this is a culture that has lost their wonderful medicines when they come here. You can't get it as readily anymore. And I think that if we started to look at cultures around the world, we'd start to find the same thing, that we all are experiencing this loss of our traditional pharmacy, which was our diet. So um, I'm going to tell you one last thing about the Tarahumara, and I think I'm spending too much time on them. Let me look at my clock here, if we're going to get you truly around the world here. Um, this, it, these are two grindstones that I found down there as I was wandering around. This one was in Taurino's kitchen, which his kitchen's an outdoor kitchen. And does anybody know what this is called? It's called a metate, yeah, and it's a very traditional, it's really the most sophisticated piece of machinery that any Taraman would have in their kitchen. No Cuisinarts, nothing like that. And that down there is a communal grindstone that was down in the base of the river, and that you need a horse to wander around. And they actually had a little bit of metal, some industrial revolution that had been pulled in there. Now, if I were to give you this, this handful of corn, does, can anybody in this room make that into corn oil using either of these two pieces of equipment? Yeah, no, you need the Industrial Revolution to make corn oil. You, need, you would get bursitis, and you would get uh, uh, you know, a lot of pains in your elbows. But actually, making corn oil in any quantity requires um, a lot of heat, and acetone and running the material actually through um, um, various types of sophisticated machinery. So what are some oils that you could make using those two pieces of equipment? Olive oil. Peanut oil would be another one. Anybody know, heard of palm fruit oil? 
okay, which is really one of the most common oils actually used around the world in West Africa and so on. So um, what's really fascinating is if you look at the makeups, the percentage of different fats of the traditional oils, which are basically oils you can make on a matate, and I include lard in that area, believe it or not. We can talk about lard later, but I'm actually quite a fan of free-range lard. Um, versus these are all oils that really require the industrial revolution, the ones on the bottom. What, you, what is one of the big differences that you notice? The omega-3-6 ratio, yes. And it turns out that omega-6 fats are quite inflammatory, the alpha-linoleic fats, and um, that we get way too much of them in our modern diet. And once again, this is a place where the research is moving from bench to actual human for us to understand. But it really does seem like people who eat a larger ratio of 6 to 3, so more 6 and less 3, tend to have more of the modern diseases that we've been talking about. And when you look at the traditional oils, including lard, (laughs) they don't have that ratio. Um, And uh, that might be the, the saturated fat might actually be the smoking gun in the room, but not necessarily what is so much of, uh, of an issue um, as this huge consumption of uh, omega-6 fats. And as you look at cultures that are getting sicker, for example, in uh, India, they've had a huge explosion of diabetes and heart disease in the past decade. And one of the biggest changes to the diet is not the consumption of red meat. It's not even necessarily the influx of dairy or McDonald's. It's the massive um, consumption of corn oil as opposed to the traditional oils like the mustard seed oil and and, uh, that was eaten before. So let's move on to Crete, um, which is another place that harbors some wonderful healing secrets for us. And one of the reasons that I traveled through Crete was because all the research shows that they have incredibly low rates of heart disease amongst their elderly population. And so while I was there, I was asking all these wise people to tell me what the secret was of the heart-healthy diet of Crete. And needless to say, everybody I ran into had their own special opinion. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) These are these lovely old people that I met who said, you know what, you're barking off the wrong tree even talking about diet. It's our laid-back lifestyle, this idea of siga-siga, which means slow-slow, and that we just move slowly. And, you know, as a matter of fact, as this woman was telling me this, she was standing in the middle of the road, and this car came barreling along, and she kind of looked at the car and then sauntered over to the side, you know. Um, but so they really just all uh, that very much had, you know, very physical, did a lot of labor, but also um, very much had this philosophy of taking it easy. And then I met Nectarios, who ran a taverna in Crete, and he was a big believer in fasting. And they fast for a huge number of days within the Greek Orthodox religion. Anybody here uh, familiar with the fasting schedule there? In, in 40 days stints, is that correct? And when I say fasting, it's not like you're not eating anything. What you're doing is giving up all the decadent stuff, the same way as some people do for Lent here in this country. So you give up the red meat, you give up the sweets, you give up um, the white flour, and so on. And what they have found when they've gone and studied the blood cholesterol levels of these folks 
is that their cholesterol is better not just when they're fasting, but throughout the whole 365 days of the year. So it turns out that doing these intermittent fasts has this sort of sustained health benefit throughout the year. And Nectarios was a big believer in it. Then I met Yorgos, and Yorgos runs the Biolea Organic Olive Farm in Astrikas. And he has a wonderful story to tell. Um, he was actually brought up in Astrikas. He was part of a family of olive growers and um, uh, really came from generations of olive growers. Probably could date his olive growing back to the Minoans. And he decided he didn't want to have anything to do with olives. So he moved to, to Canada and became a pilot. And he said it was great in Canada. I had meat all the time, meat for breakfast, meat for lunch, meat for dinner. And then when he was in his mid-40s, he came back to Astrikas to visit the family. And he was taking a little jog in the hills. And all of a sudden, he just had horrible chest pain. <laughs> and he went to his local doctor, and within a week, he had had a quadruple bypass for like severe heart blockage. So he said, later for this Canadian lifestyle, later for being a pilot, he moved back to Biolea, took over the olive farm, and now was there to tell me that the reason that his grandparents, and he showed them to me on his screensaver, had... <laughs> each lived to be over 100 was because they had eaten between the two of them 50 kilos of olive oil a year. And he said, as a matter of fact, my father would have lived to be over 100, but he was 96 and he was fixing the roof and he fell off the ladder. So, you know, so that was Yorgos's take on it. And then I met Katerina and uh, Katerina walks up in the hills every other day and does something called picking orta which is basically she takes her little knife and she goes and picks the wild greens. And it's something that her mother and her grandmother taught her to do. And these greens are filled with antioxidants and they're absolutely delicious when you cook them with olive oil. And she took me out to pick Orta and, and she swears that it's the secret to, to uh, longevity and low rates of heart disease on Crete. And uh, then I met Stelios and he runs a little organic farm in... Um, a town called Hanya, and he said, sure, it's the olive oil and the orta, but it's really the barley, the whole grain barley that we eat on Crete. And he made me a dacos. Has anybody had a dacos? It's like a pizza from Crete, but it's a whole grain rusk, and then feta cheese, and then you can see a little bit of tomato and an olive and some herbs on top, and you really have to use those molars to, you know, rip off a piece of the rusk. Actually, you dip it in wine, and that's what makes it soft and fantastic. But uh, he was right. I mean, I could feel that thing working through my whole system. <laughs> and then, uh, actually, it was Iona, who is Nectarios's mother-in-law, who said that it really is the fish that are making all the difference on Crete. And finally, I met Nikos, who was this crazy waiter working in a little uh, restaurant, roadside restaurant called Sternabrumausfi, who said, don't listen to any of those folks. He said, it's the Raki, which is this great must alcohol, which, you know, like I took a sip this big and it like blew the roof off my head. Um, but, and this is where they actually make it. Uh, but he says, I drink a liter of this stuff a day. And look at me. And he actually looked pretty good. He looked like, you know, like a, an aging kind of hippie, this long gray hair. And um, so I decided I didn't know who to believe of all these folks. So, so 
you know, I am a physician. I did a research fellowship. I decided I was just going to go back to the scientific literature and try and figure out really what was the healing ingredient on Crete. Because, you know, what did these folks know? So I went and looked up the research of Antonia Tricopoulou, who really is the most famous you know, contemporary researcher on nutrition uh, in the Mediterranean diet. And apparently she was troubled by the same question, but she's just a much more uh, numbers person and, and much smarter than I am. So what she did was she took all the foods on Crete and she assigned them all number values, okay? And she decided she was going to run them through and, uh, um, and, and relate them to longevity and figure out which of these foods were helping people live longer. And so she did all these complicated statistical gymnastics to figure it out and came up with these odds risk ratios for various foods. So odd risk ratio or hazard ratio for death of one means that it doesn't contribute and doesn't protect, okay? If it's greater than one, it, it contributes. If it's less than one, it protects. Okay, so look at these numbers here for the various things. Okay, if down and that's in the far right ratio. What do you notice? They're all about one. I mean, yeah, fruits and vegetables are a little bit less, and meat is a little bit more, but nothing very impressive, and nothing that's going to make you radically change your diet, right? So, what's the answer here? Oh, yes. Boy, she should have just come and talked to you. You probably would have saved herself a million dollars. Yes, this is the answer right here. It's the recipes. It's these same traditions that have been handed down generation after generation. There isn't a superfood. I've got terrible news for you. There's no superfood out there, even though I wish I could sell you one. It really is the way they go together, the way the lemon pulls out the antioxidants from the greens, the way the olive oil and the tomatoes, the lycopene in the tomatoes is pulled out from the olive oil, the way that the barley slows down, the sugars in the barley slow down to match the, 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 the vinegar um, that's uh, also put into that recipe. I mean, in hundreds of other interactions that honestly you don't really need to worry about because it is the recipes. That is the healing ingredient. So I'm going to take you to Iceland quickly. And I don't know if we're going to have time to go everywhere, but it's better for us to go to a couple places and enjoy them. Um, anybody here been to Iceland? No? Oh, okay, great. So Iceland, unfortunately, these days is sort of famous for a volcano that uh, really slowed down Europe for a week and also for the banks, which have really imploded. Uh, and I have to say that I wrote my chapter and did all, spent all my time in Iceland before they had their financial meltdown. So I'm not really sure what the situation is right now. But Iceland is so fascinating because... Here they are, this northernmost country where you can't really grow terribly much, and yet they have some of the highest rates of longevity on Earth that are truly documented in the birth certificate. It's not a bunch of people who are 40 who are claiming that they're 110. They really, we know that they are quite old there. And I, whenever I travel to a new country, I do what I call the cemetery test. 
Okay, where I walk down one row in a cemetery and I see how many tombstones I can find of people who live over 100, and I count them up. Well, in Iceland, I had to go down like a quarter of a row to find three. I mean, it was amazing, way more than anywhere else I've been. It seems like everybody lives beyond 100 in Iceland. Um, And what's really interesting is you might say it's genetics, but they did a sister study with Icelanders who emigrated to Canada, and all of a sudden they started to get health problems and die young and so on. So we know that it's not just protective genes. So this is another thing about Iceland that's really interesting. It's northern, and in the winter you never see sunshine, and in the summer you never see dark. I mean, it's just a crazy schizophrenic place. And yet... No, the rates of diabetes, uh, diabetes, of depression, are unbelievably low there. Not only regular depression, but seasonal affective disorder, which you're supposed to get when it's really dark out, postpartum depression, um, bipolar depression, so on and so forth. And much lower than other parts of Europe, and certainly lower than their sister country, Finland, where everybody's jumping off bridges. So it really is you know, quite amazing. And uh, this is one of the researchers who's studying this. Um, his name is Johan Axelsson, and he calls it Iceland's depression paradox. And actually, I took this picture with him and his wife, Inger, at 11 at night in the summer. In Iceland, you can see it's still light out. Um, the nightclubs there all have to put these dark curtains on all the windows because it's bright out, and they're trying to pretend like it's dark. So at first, Johan Axelsson thought that the secret to um, all of these low rates of depression and to health in general had to do with those omega-3 fats that you guys heard about the other day. Because Icelanders eat more fish per capita than anywhere else in the world, even more than the Japanese. It's quite amazing. And so he thought, this makes sense. We know that omega-3 fats are good for the heart, they're good for the brain, they're good for the nervous system. Everybody's just drunk on fish, and that's really why they're all living so long. And as a matter of fact, when you look at some of the transnational research, and this is a guy, Joseph Hibbel, in the NIH that did this study, you find that around the world, cultures that eat more fish have less depression. It sort of marches out. And so that that was sort of his conclusion. But he was really troubled by one thing. And Johann Oxelson is a really prestigious, upstanding researcher, and there was a piece of his data that wasn't making sense. And that was that there was one town that was the main town that they were studying in Iceland that's an inland town. And in this town called Egilstadir, which I'm probably pronouncing totally wrong because it's got all those little umflats and things on it, um, people don't eat so much fish. What their favorite meal there is is mutton. And they, for every fish meal, they're probably having four mutton meals. And he said, this is really strange. They're eating a lot of mutton there, and yet their blood levels of omega-3 fats are the same as the folks on the coast who are eating all the fish. So he thought, well, maybe they're feeding fish to their sheep. Has anybody heard of a fish-eating sheep? No, unlikely. Um, But he went there, and he, in springtime, he slaughtered one of the little newborn lambs and tested the blood levels of that little lamb. And sure enough, he found that the lambs had as much omega-3 fats in their blood as the fish. And where were they getting it? What they're eating. Yeah, I I think you're going to just save us many dollars in all this nutrition research. We're going to just go to you. What they are eating, exactly. What are they eating? 
they are eating these little tiny grasses that have to work really hard to grow. And it turns out when vegetables have a lot of adversity and have to work really hard to make it above the earth, they're filled with things that are good for you and filled with something called alpha-linoleic acid, which I don't know if um, you were uh, talked about this the other day, is actually the precursor to eicosapentaenoic acid, which is the omega-3 fats in fish. And we can pretty much do a decent job, most of us, unless there's some real genetic problem, of converting that, as can lambs, to the omega-3 fat form. So it turns out that that's where they were getting it. And if you look at the research, and this is out of UC Davis, all of a sudden we've traveled from Iceland to the Central Valley here, and you look at grain-fed beef versus free-range animals who are kind of equivalent to the Iceland, Icelandic sheep, except maybe not getting as much as the Icelandic sheep. What do you see is the difference in their omega-3 fat levels between all these free-range or wild animals and the, the, the corn-fed, confined beef? More omega-3s. Yeah, any other observations? Oh, isn't that astounding? Isn't that... Yeah, isn't it? It's so interesting. Yeah, and monounsaturated too. And and um, yeah, it's it, it is really quite interesting. So um, and uh, yeah, the other fats sort of march out the same. But those are really the the really interesting ones. So um, the other thing that they found in Iceland was that not only were they finding these omega three fats in the sheep, they're finding it in the milk from the free range cows. And this is a family on the right. You know how we would. Take take our kids out to Dairy Queen, they take their kids out to the local dairy and they have this big pitcher of milk. You can see they drank it all. And they also ordered this rusk, just like the stuff on Crete, with salmon on it. And I watched these kids fight over this dark bread and salmon and a glass of milk. And I thought about my two kids who would be like, Ugh! it was just quite amazing to see. So a lot of this is traditions that then you pass down through the family. Now, another thing just so interesting in Iceland when you talk about healing diets. If you talk to anybody in Iceland about vegetables, what their answer is is, oh, that's not food. They hate vegetables, the Icelanders. Almost, it's a, par it's a part of national pride to hate vegetables. And yet, here is a country that is unbelievably healthy and also have these really strong, undepressed brains. And we're all taught that you need to have all these antioxidants and B vitamins to keep your brains healthy. Well, it turns out that, yeah, they hate the kind of vegetables that we think of vegetables, like salad and cucumbers and tomatoes, and they should hate them because they don't grow in Iceland, and if you get them there, they taste horrible. It tastes like a, you're eating a toilet paper roll, you know, just totally tasteless. But these are the kinds of vegetables that they can get there, and I think that they offer secrets for those of us who don't love, that they were just not salad munchers. For example, the tiny little new potatoes, and they eat them with the skin on, and the skins themselves have lots of uh, rich nutrients in it. And it also turns out that when you eat those potatoes, um, the little um, waxy potatoes instead of the starchy ones, that they have much lower sugar levels in them too. So there's an interesting secret, as opposed to our big fluffy Yukons that we eat here. Uh, things like uh, sauerkraut and cabbage, wonderful source of all those nutrients. 
What you see up in the corner there are bilberries, which are like our blueberries, which are really an antioxidant bomb. And then in the lower left, this is the most interesting one, is the local moss. And they mix it in with the barley and cook it into bread, and it's absolutely nutty and delicious. I really like it. They you know, sell it in the health food stores for a lot of money. Um, so it's, uh, it's, you know, they, they, they do not necessarily have the traditional idea about vegetables. Sadly, Iceland, like everywhere else, the younger generation is in love with all that we have to offer here, and they're eating or drinking more sodas per capita in Reykjavik now than anywhere else on the planet. This is a statue, an ode to Coca-Cola that I came across in Iceland. So let's go to Cameroon in West Africa. And uh, Cameroon is actually a place that is very near and dear to my heart because um, I first was there when I was 18 years old. I, I dropped out of college, basically, and went uh, to work in Cameroon and ended up being there for a couple years and uh, worked with midwives there. And actually, that's what inspired me to go back and finish my education and go on to medical school and so on. And I lived in a very remote little village called Nchui that was in central Cameroon and uh, really kind of ended up with an adoptive family there. And, and one of the things that really affected me the most in Cameroon was the local foods and getting very inspired to start cooking. And I feel like that really was the beginning for me of learning how to cook was my time that I spent there. Um, but... Cameroon, statistically, and actually if you look at most of West Africa and even parts of Southern Africa, what's so fascinating from a health standpoint is that in the rural, in the very traditional areas, they have some of the lowest rates of colon cancer and colon diseases in general in the world. So, you know, here I was in this little village in a wayside hospital for a couple years. I didn't see, like, one case of hemorrhoids or diverticulosis or Crohn's or inflammatory bowel of any kind, much less colon cancer. And what's really fascinating is in the United States, we have some of the highest rates of colon cancer, and African Americans have an even slightly higher rate than Caucasian Americans, and yet many can trace their ancestry back to West. West Africa. So once again, are we talking about genetics here? No, there's something else that has changed. And the question is, what? And the other piece that I should add is that when Cameroonians move to the big cities um, uh, like Yaoundé and live there for a generation or two, they start to get colon cancer at the same rate as they do in Europe or the United States. So we know that it, there's something in the traditional villages that is very protective. And they are all part of the same family of diseases, very much. And yes, did not see them. And this isn't something, that, by the way, that was just studied recently. It, there was a guy named Burkett who, went, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, traveled around Africa and made the same observations. So this is some, yeah, same guy, yeah. So he was an Irishman, <laughs> and he ended up in Uganda and did the same studies. So. I am going to just put my favorite dish, which is called ndole, from Cameroon, out there as, um, as my example of what the protective diet of the region that I was in. Now, to some of you, this might look 
like just a mush on the plate, but I am telling you that this is the best food you've ever tasted in your life. And um, it is a mixture of ground nuts, a little tiny bit of beef, um, some fish, uh, it has palm fruit oil in it, and it has tons of wild greens and um, uh, garlic, and it's one of those rare dishes that has fish and meat and sometimes wor it somehow works, and you serve it over uh, fermented millet. And um, I have a recipe for it in my book. When it's made traditionally by someone who really knows what they're doing, it takes two days to make um, a, a, a real dish of indole. But uh, and you have to grind it all by hand and everything. But my friend Chantal, who's from the village, actually gave me the, what she calls the indole light recipe. And she's actually a nurse here now in San Francisco. And she ran all the ingredients over to my office when I was recipe testing for this. It was very funny. Um, but in there, as I said, there is a recipe in the book if you want to try indole. And I think it's on a couple of websites as well. But. What everybody always thought and what Burkett thought was what, what was so exceptionally protective about the West African and East African diet was the fiber. And I'm sure you've all heard the fiber hypothesis, this idea that it, you know, what protects you from colon cancer is that you're eating all this fiber that's going through your gut and cleaning out your gut and so on. And that might be a part of the story. But the interesting thing is when they just give fiber in any form, like Metamucil or whatever, to people, it doesn't look like it protects so well against colon cancer. So we only have a little piece of the story there when you're talking about fiber. It's just probably a marker for something else. And one of the things might very well be that what did I tell you was the main ingredient in that indole is these wild greens. And wild greens are full of something called folate. Did you guys talk about that already? Well, folate in a test tube absolutely stops mid-reproduction mid any kind of cancer cells. It's really interesting to see. And presumably it's doing the same thing in our gut as it's doing in the intestine. It blocks the replication of cancer cells. Now this is another piece of the secret, and that is that what you're seeing in front of you here is the meat that we would get if we were in Tui, living in Tui, and that we would eat. Now this is not everyday meat. This is a savings account, okay? If your daughter gets married, you might kill one of these, okay? If you are named chief of the village, you might kill one of these. But these are precious animals who are much more valuable eating the grass and refertilizing the grass and being there alive than they are dead. Okay, so you're going to hold on to these, and they cost you so much money per pound. Probably, I would guess, equivalently hundreds of dollars per pound, the value of these animals. Now, you compare that to us and how we get our meat at $1.79 a pound when you go into Safeway. And I'm not going to talk to you about the difference in like hormones and all the other unhealthy things that are in our meat. But just in terms of dollar-to-dollar -dollar value, so what ends up happening is when you cook your meat, you're going to use it. How are you going to use it? Sparingly. It is precious. You are going to use it like a fine spice, like saffron or caviar, okay? And that's how it is used there. And that is part of it, too. And we see that these low-meat diets are very much linked to low rates of colon cancer. And this is the clincher, 
Remember at the beginning of the talk, I talked to you about these children and their bacteria in their stool? Well, it turns out that it's not only the vegetables that are feeding the good bacteria. It's the fermented foods that you're eating already with the bacteria on them that is making a difference. And this research also is exploding right now. If you go in and Google colon cancer and, um, and microbiosis or even probiotic, you're going to find hundreds of hits. And it's, it's still very much in the evolving form. But I can tell you that these great-grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers and so on did not need the researchers at UCSF to figure this out. They knew that eating these fermented vegetables and so on was keeping them healthy. And we as a culture, other than yogurt, which probably isn't even in the same category as all these other fermented vegetables, because it makes firmicutes, which are more like the, the red ones than the green ones. Other than yogurt, we don't eat fermented foods in our culture. Who ate something fermented today? Okay, three in the room. Sauerkraut, kimchi, miso, you know, you name it, pickles, wine-aged vinegar. These are things that our diet should just be filled with. Fermented millet, you know, when you cook your grains, leave them out on the counter for a day. If you die of botulism, come and sue me, okay? You'll be fine, okay? Much safer than all the stuff you buy from the store. We don't ferment enough. We don't allow this stuff this healthy bacteria to, to actually be introduced into our colon. And you're, you heard it first here, but you're going to hear more and more about this in the decade to come. Now, the final piece of the West African diet, and none of this would be there without this, is the spices. And we don't cook with enough spices in our culture either. And these spices are medicine, okay? This is the pharmacy that you want to be shopping at, okay? Turmeric and cumin are more powerful antioxidants than naproxen or you know, than any of those anti-inflammatories, and they don't burn your stomach, and they don't cause kidney disease and all these other problems, okay? So these are actually very, very powerful foods, and they also are shown to block the replication of cancer cells in the intestine. So very, very interesting. I think we're going to skip Okinawa. Um, and it's probably the culture you're most familiar with, because we, we're supposed to end at 8 o'clock, and I, I talk too slowly here. Um, I should, let me just tell you one little piece about Okinawa. I was there as a visiting professor for three months in the summer at uh, Chubu University, which is kind of like the Harvard of Japan. It's this very prestigious medical school that's uh, in Okinawa, and it imports all these medical students from the north of Japan. And uh, Okinawa is like Hawaii of Japan, and you know we had the, it's most famous for our military base, but um, it's much more laid-back culture than the rest of Japan, and so on. And the traditional folks there are much more island folks. And as you know, the elders in Okinawa have lived an incredibly long time. They're very healthy. They also happen to have very low rates of breast and prostate cancer, which was one of the things that I was looking at there. But the reason that they had me come teach as a visiting professor on Okinawa, guess why I was brought there for? To teach nutrition. Now, isn't that funny? <laughs> that this doctor from San Francisco was brought to the place with the longest living people on earth to the medical school 
to teach nutrition. Well, they liked me because I had gone to Harvard and they thought that was a nice pedigree and so on, and they're very, were very into it. But all the medical students that I was teaching came from the north of Japan. They came from places uh, like Hokkaido and Tokyo and, and Kyoto, and really smart, wonderful students, but had never left the hospital. They were there to study. None of them had ever been out into the local area at all. And so my job was super easy. I would just run around with my little camera in the markets, and I would interview all the 100-year-old ladies and take pictures of their foods. And then I would go back to the big medical lecture hall. And you know they all spoke English, but the English wasn't so great, so it was good that I had lots of pictures. And I would just throw up these pictures. That's what I would do for hours at a time. And the medical students would sit there, and they'd drink their supersized Coca-Colas and eat their hamburgers. And they would sit there and watch these pictures of the traditional diet in Japan. And I would explain to them why this was healing. And they were just amazed. Like I was telling them the most mind-boggling piece of information they had ever received. And so that's just, uh, for me, is such a funny cross-cultural story. But if you want to know about the low rates of breast and prostate cancer in Japan, just look at these pictures. Everything from the whole soy, which acts very different than processed soy. Okay, bottom line, whole soy good, processed soy not good. So all those power bars, tofutis, tofurkis, and so on, throw them out. And eat tofu and tempeh and miso. The fish, the greens, the yams... Um, these are the green tea, the seaweed. As uh, I could actually talk to you for four hours about seaweed. I have so much to say about seaweed, but I won't do that. Um, um, but this is actually one other piece in Japan that I will just tell you about quickly. This felt like so incongruous to me. Here was this incredibly healthy culture, and then you go to the Makishi Public Market, which is the traditional market, and they love pig. It's everywhere. They venerate the pig. They put sunglasses on it. And they sell you not only the pig, but the whole pig. You buy pig ears, pig tail, pig, pig skin, pig snouts, and you cook it all. And I was so troubled by this. I said, how am I going to go to the folks back home and tell them about the healthy diet in Okinawa when they eat so much pig? So I was talking about this with my friend Kenji, who's a local doctor, and he invited me over for dinner, and I met his mom, or his mother-in-law, Fujiko-san, who's a wonderful lady. She's actually in her 70s, and she swore to me that she doesn't dye her hair, so that alone made me convinced that whatever she was doing was healthy. Um, and um, she showed me how she cooked her pig. So look in that uh, dish there. Do you see how much meat is in that dish? How much do you think, how many people do you think she's feeding there? Okay. It was for the okazu. Look at all those dishes. And that was the meat for the dish. Those are the pig. Okay, so most of it is vegetables and rice and all these other things. But really, once again, meat is a spice. And they also have this wonderful saying in Japan, harahachibu. Does anybody know what that means? Eat until you're 80% full. You know, I could sell you 10 diet books, or I could just tell you harahachibu, you know? It's such a wonderful piece of wisdom. And as you said, the children are taught that. It's just the same, the way we say gesundheit or something. You know, it just, you grow up with that idea that you should never eat till you're 100% full. Eat 20% less. Wow, brilliant. 
And the other thing that I love in Japan is that most of the sweetness really comes from the whole food. So this is a dessert that I watched Kenji's kids fight over. And it's just purple yams that were beaten up, you know. And uh, sadly, modern-day Okinawa is uh, being taken over by McDonald's. Here I am in the hospital with my team of young upstart doctors, and it's hysterical. Would you see what I'm holding there? So you know what they were teaching the patients for a healthy alternative? Low-sodium spam. These amazing markets that are out there and all this richness, and that's what the nutrition department was teaching. So, you know, we're losing these traditions everywhere, folks. It's not just here in the United States. Every culture is losing their treasure. We're in a very tragic moment. So I'm just going to quickly summarize everything that I just said in the last hour. And by the way, this is me when I'm at my best. I do teach, I cook teaching and do, I teach cooking. Oh, I'm getting tired. And do cooking demonstrations and um, uh, really love it. And I haven't chopped my finger off yet, although I probably have come close at times. So fresh and local produce. You all know this. Yes. How many of you have your own gardens, even if it's a pot? Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And, you know, we talked about those kids in the village in West Africa. They're as tied to the land as you're going to get. The closer you can get your intestines to a farm, the better. Going down on your hands and knees and eating the dirt from a healthy farm is way better for you than going to McDonald's. You heard it here, okay? (laughs) So, you know, we really want you to be as tied to the farm as possible. Native grains, the bulgur and so on that we talked to, quality over quantity of meat. Use it as a spice. And actually the whole animal, not just for environmental reasons, but if you're eating a healthy animal that's eaten well, you're actually getting a lot of nutrients from the parts of the animal that we normally throw away. We're having a massive vitamin D deficiency, epidemic of vitamin D deficiency, and actually organ meats are some of the best sources. The reason we've come to fear these meats is because they are the collectors of all that is horrible when your animal has eaten poorly. But if it's an animal that you know how it's been raised and it's free range, then actually eat the whole animal. Eat your um, meat should be as a spice or as a feast. Uh, Lots of non-meaty proteins and beans are really the way to go. Beans, beans, and more beans. Fermented foods, and uh, there's a great book called Wild Fermentation that will teach you how to do this. Indigenous oils, and what's the definition of an indigenous oil? One that you can make on your matate, okay? Okay, and healing spices and sweet and sour from whole foods. And then the, um, these eating traditions, the siga siga, and that means eating slowly too, you know, not just living slowly. And harahachibu and the modified feasts and communal eating. And most of these cultures, people don't eat alone unless there's no one else for hundreds of miles. You know, you just travel to eat with other people. And uh, I'm just going to tell you one last little story, and that was that here I was in the highlands of Crete. I was trudging around. I was trying to find the secrets for the traditional diet of Crete. And this woman, this elderly woman, came riding up on her mule. And she stopped, and she looked at me, and I must have looked just terrible. And it's not a part of Crete where you see a lot of tourists. And she said, what are you doing here? 
And I started to tell her I was looking for the traditional diets. I wanted to know about her recipes and her secrets. And all of a sudden, I could tell she just wasn't listening to me at all. And she got off her mule, and she said, look, you look so horrible. Get on. (laughs) Can you imagine being in your 40s and being led back to a hotel room? by a woman who's probably in her 90s and dropped off at the front door, how humiliating that is. So my only conclusion was when I'm her age, I want to be just like her, and these are the ways to do it. So thank you so much. The question was the year and the month of the National Geographic that had the study, the um, the, all the reports of longevity. And I apologize, I can look it up on the internet. I probably could do it right now and look it up for you. Um, in terms of organ meats, there are definitely are studies looking at nutritional quality of organ meats. The, as I explained, though, the problem is that a lot of the organ meats that would conventionally be studied are ones that you would not want to eat because they are the filtration system for the animal. And so when your animal has had antibiotics and pesticides and hormones raging through its system, that area becomes the the concentrated collection area for that. So eating that, you're getting the highest dose of those things. By contrast, if you eat an animal that is free range and has not has been raised organically, so none of with none of these inputs, that part of the body, the organ meets can sometimes be a little bit richer and fattier, but they are actually very nutritious. nutritious. And, you know, in the United States, we throw out a huge... Not only do we eat more meat per capita than anywhere else on the planet, but we throw out huge parts of the animal. And these are parts of the animal that if we grew them in a healthy way and ate them in a healthy way would feed many more people with meat as a spice. And so I really do think it's something that we need to start thinking about. Not just for health reasons, but for sustainability reasons. If you're going to eat an whole if you're going to eat an animal, think about eating the whole animal. I mean with chickens we don't even eat the brown meat. People just want breasts. You, we throw out huge parts of chickens. It's, I, I go to Whole Foods and all I buy is the, the, thigh, the free range thighs. I get them for $3.99 a pound. It's you know, way cheaper than the, the $7.99 a pound breast and it has way more nutrition in it. The darker the meat, the more nutritious. So. And as a matter of fact, remember those studies, the omega-3 fat studies I showed you from free range animals? Guess where the most omega-3 fat is concentrated in an animal? Near the hoof. Yeah, so eat down on the hoof as well. (laughs) Okay, so brain is the one thing that I can't stand up in front of you as a doctor and espouse, even though I have eaten brain myself and actually think, once again, when you look at free-range animals, that the brain is probably, probably perfectly safe. But the problem is that things like mad cow disease and the prions that you find in that are concentrated in the nervous tissue. Now, if you look at which animals get mad cow disease, they're all animals that were either raised in a confined area or that have been fed products that are chewed up animals that are raised in a confined area. In England, what really caused this was that they were feeding cows to cows. Okay, And so that is when you get into trouble. And if you want to 
go back and look at some fascinating stuff. Read the writings of Rudolf Steiner. He wrote in, you know, the 18, you know, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, and he talked about the fact that if you feed animals to, to herbivores, they will go crazy, is what he said. And this is before Prions or, you know, even Louis Pasteur. It, uh, in the, the writings of Rudolf Steiner, he wrote actually in his, a number of different ones, but it was, this was in his Anthroposophic series. And if anybody in this room can actually read Rudolf Steiner, you're a better person than I. Uh, but I've read people who've, who have um, distilled his writing. It's incredibly difficult to get through Rudolf Steiner. I've I'm writing a book about farming now, and I've tried to get through his agricultural series like three times, and it's been very hard. So, <laughs> Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. We are, we are, what we're doing is we're creating breeds of megabacteria and eliminating all these delicate little ones. Bacteroidetes is a very sensitive, delicate little bacteria. It's not hardy at all, the ones that are were in the green versus the firmicutes are kind of these stupid, short bacteria that are really good at processing sugars and fats. And um, that's what we're seeing for sure, you know, just in terms of methicillin-resistant staph, staph being another one, <laughs> you know, and so on. So um, it's, uh, it, uh, we're seeing that just across the board. It's, you know, we talk a lot about extinction of the species in terms of macro species, and none of us realize that we are actually examples of extinction, you know, what's running around in our intestine. It's really quite profound. Now, I'm going to tell you something else about that study, the corollary to that study. There's a guy named Jeff Gordon at the University of St. Louis in Missouri who's really the king of microbiota, and he's spawned all these postdocs who have just graduated. One's down in Stanford. They're around the country studying this right now. But what he's been using are these notobiotic mice, which are mice that don't have bacteria in their intestine. So there's these great petri dishes in which you can inoculate different bacteria and see what happens. And what they found is that you can take these mice that have terrible colonies in their intestine and start to feed them well, put them on a diet from Burkina Faso, and within weeks, things start to change. It's not necessarily that it gets perfect again. We might be born with a certain fingerprint from our mothers, and that might be kind of the, the, what we go back to. And there's actually a whole lot of research going on now about obesity and relationship to bacterial microorganisms. But you can change it. It's modifiable, even within weeks. So as you're eating that horrible meal, think of all those firmicutes that are like giving each other high fives in your gut, and then you go and you eat, you know, something really wonderful in some of the meals that I've described, and you can start to bring those bacteroidetes back. Okay? <laughs> yes? Blues, you know, I'm going to confess that I actually never, I, I mean, I'm very familiar with it because I'm always being told that this sounds like Blue Zone, but Blue Zone was sort of just people who are happy and healthy and live well and, and so on. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, you know, there the bottom line is that there are still pockets around the world where people are very much living traditionally and eating a traditional diet, and that it doesn't really matter what kind of diet it is. Iceland, you saw, they don't love greens. They actually do eat a fair amount of meat, but it's free-range meat. Uh, they also counter that with a lot of grains and potatoes and so on. 
to Copper Canyon, we were there basically vegan. They have a little bit of pork in their diet, but not much. And all these folks are healthy, but what are they not doing? They're not eating the standard American diet. And so that probably is the biggest distinction. And I think for you all, that's great news in that there's a lot of different ways to eat healthy. You can pick any of these traditional diets. You can go from one to the other. Um, but, you know, because I think the problem we hear about the Mediterranean diet, but not everybody loves the Mediterranean diet. And the truth is that the Mediterranean diet that we hear about isn't really even the real Mediterranean diet anymore. It's what you get at Olive Garden, right? So, <laughs> yeah, so a wonderful question. Uh, this is the last one. Oh, oh okay. Um, in terms of meal frequency and what they're doing for activity. You know, anybody who tells you that they can do these studies and truly tease out one factor, these ecological studies, is, is misleading you. And of course, you know, you, there's a lot of different factors. It, it is a whole lifestyle. But when I looked at the epidemiological research, and specifically like those studies I showed you at the beginning, uh, looking at the Mediterranean diet, they really did try and control from a bunch of different factors. So it was, it was interesting to see that... Um, even when you look at like smoking activity, you know, physical activity, stress, all these other things, that diet does have this independent benefit. But you're right. You need to look at the, at the whole lifestyle. And the second part of the question was meal frequency in the day. And I really felt that that, that kind of varied too. Um, for example, in Peru, the fishermen only eat two meals. They eat one at 10 and one at 5. And they're kind of bigger meals uh, and that was really, within that culture, was because of the fishing schedule that had become what everybody did. Um, and, you know, other cultures eat three meals. But what you do see uniformly in most of these cultures is that the evening meal is not the big meal. It's either lunch or breakfast. Um, and that pretty much across the board in, in most traditional cultures. And it makes sense. When you eat a big meal at night, you feel awful, you know? And you, you can't know, but what you do know, and the question is, is how much of it is the culture and how much of it is the food. And what I'm going to answer to you is that the food is the culture. Uh, it's the glue. And if you think about it, you know, your, your dream for your family or for your ideal life is to come together with people you love for meals. And not only then are you eating something delicious, something that you've made and prepared together. But it turns out that when you eat as a group or as a culture, you eat differently. They've done lots of studies with kids and shown that when kids eat around a family table, they model the adults, and they eat actually way less per meal than when they sit there alone or sit in front of a TV or actually what most people in this country do is eat in their cars. I think we have more meals in cars than anywhere else. Um, so you can't tease this stuff out. And that was certainly not my goal in doing this work. My, my goal really was to look at, uh, to do the opposite and to really start to look at food not as our, what our tendency is here is to look at it as a pill or a superfood. How many of you have seen the 10 greatest superfoods in some you know, magazine or something like that? but to really understand that it's way more than the food itself. It's the recipes, it's the traditions, 
It's the relationships. It's the way they're eaten in the day. It's the way they're eaten in the season. It's the way that they're grown. It's the way that you identify yourself, and, and you know, both within that community and within that family. And that those are that's very, very important medicine. So I'm really glad that was the last question. That was an important question. Thank you. I think it's all part of the same package. There was a wonderful study that was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, this week or maybe last week, looking at extremely obese people and for the first time dispelling the myth that you, you know, you, we thought in the medical profession that the only way you could lose weight if you were extreme, you know, BMI over 35 was to have weight loss surgery. That really is like what the medical profession was teaching. And uh, they put folks on a diet that's not, wasn't that different than the foods I'm talking about. And they had them exercise moderately every day, the way that Ellen Hughes proposed. And they all lost weight and did very well. Now, was it the exercise? Was it the diet? I can't tell you. It's the combination of these things. But in all these cultures, they don't exercise the way we do. They're not, like, obsessive and going to the gym and, you know, trying to prepare for a marathon, you know, one month and then doing nothing the next. That's what people in the U.S. do. We go to one extreme and the other. They're, they just move their bodies every day. Even in the kitchen, they're burning calories. You saw that, Matate. You spend 20 minutes with that thing, and you've you know, probably burned 200 calories so, or more. So you know, the, it really is just much more a part of the culture. I mean, the other thing, if you'll notice, these folks from Crete and even the folks from Japan... They don't look like the front cover of AARP elderly, you know? They're not like these cachectic, uh, you know, perfectly Dooney and Burke-looking folks. Some of them are actually have a little bit of layers on them, you know? And that was really interesting for me, too. But they're really healthy. They move around. They eat well. And so I think, like, our image of aging needs to change a little bit, and it has to be much more about what you're doing and eating and so on, and less about how you look, <laughs> which is, I think, where we're really focused as a culture as you get older. So <laughs> it's really quite amazing how much fasting goes on there. Uh, um, and, uh, but as I said, it's not total fasting. It's just giving up the decadent foods. And I've actually started to bring that into my own patterns. Like, I, you know, going through these phases where I'll be like, I'm going to really cut back. And it's not dieting. It's different than dieting. It's just giving up the things that feel overboard, you know, and, you know, eat the things that feel right and healthy and try and get yourself back on in, you know, in line again to eat low fat, tons of low fat dairy. Yeah. Yet yeah, um, the, uh, the truth is that if you use dairy the way that I encourage people to use dairy, which is very much the way I encourage people to use meat, which is use it, but use it as a spice, so you grate your cheese as a spice, um, then you should absolutely have it be whole fat because it's delicious. It's going to have more nutrients in it that way. You actually need the fat to absorb other nutrients. Um, it, if you actually look at the calorie count, just go in the supermarket and look at the calorie count between your whole-fat yogurt and your low-fat yogurt. It's not that different. The low-fat, it's just the sugars have taken over, you know. So, and fats tend to be very settling and very filling. Um, most of my patients, I get them to drop their cholesterol by actually adding fat to their diet. So, 
um, uh, and uh, by just having them eat small amounts of it, but have it be satisfying. Is that, is that helpful or is that confusing? Okay, well, there's, um, you know, a lot of the, the wonderful fatty foods out there, things like avocados, and I actually happen to consider coconut oil in small amounts, or, you know, coconut milk in small amounts to be part of that. And we talked about um, uh, the fats that exist in foods. For example, that corn that they're eating in Copper Canyon, they're getting fats from that corn, but they're not getting it from grinding it on the metate. They're getting it from the whole food, right? And there are fats in grains and so on. So I really encourage people to look at getting healthy fats throughout their diet. And it's very important. We need fats to make our nerves and in order to survive. And I do get these folks, especially women in their 50s, that you know their skin is kind of dry, their hair is falling out, they look horribly tired. They really look like they're fat-free. They look like a fat-free yogurt, you know? And... Uh, um, I try and you know introduce more fats into their diet, and it makes a very huge difference for them. But there's a difference between that and going overboard and having too many. So it really is using it you know more as a spice, and then trying to get it from whole foods. So. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.